Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdrafts up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Welcome to another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and today we are continuing our third season, which we call Murdered in Their Beds. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend going back to episode 36 and start the new season from there. It's the first part in this series and marks the beginning of the transient butcher's reign of terror in the Midwest of the early 1900s. Each episode will not only explore the killer's horrific crimes, but will explore the effect he had on the small railroad towns of the region, especially the town of Aliska, Iowa. So open all the curtains, hide the axe in the barn, and prepare for the next installment of Murder in Their Beds. summer of 1912, a number of suspects in the Moore murders were named and then dismissed. And as summer turned to fall and fall turned to winter, there were dozens of theories, but genuine leads were getting harder and harder to find. Frank Jones had problems of his own in the summer and fall of 1912. Gossip was circulating in town about the possibility of an affair between J.B. Moore and Dona Jones, Albert's wife, who already had a reputation as a loose woman. There was also talk about the bad blood that supposedly existed between Jones and Moore over business matters. At the time that J.B. quit working for Jones and went into competition, with him at the new dealership, little was made of it. Jones, of all people, understood how business worked. It's possible he felt a little betrayed by Moore, but he never publicly expressed any hard feelings against him. After the murders, though, people in town began to talk, inventing trouble where there hadn't been any before. But it was only small-town gossip at this point. Frank had bigger things to worry about, namely his run for the Senate in the 8th District. His only political experience up to that point were the three terms he had served on the city council, and he waded into an election against two other candidates, one a Democrat and the other a member of the new Progressive Party, which had been founded by former President Theodore Roosevelt because of his disgust for what the Republican Party had become. By fall, the Senate race was still too close to call. There were no scientific polls in those days. The political contest was talked about in pool halls, saloons, restaurants, and drugstores, at public events, and over the back fence with the neighbors. Just before the election, though, the progressive candidate dropped out of the race. On that same night, Frank spoke at the Villisca Commercial Club banquet held at the Methodist Church. Many of those that took part in the dinner that evening became intertwined in the troubles that faced Frank Jones in the years to come. Albert F. Davey performed a musical number that night. 
He was considered to be one of the premier vocalists in the area, widely known as the Songbird of Aliska. He sang at hundreds of weddings, banquets, church services, and funerals over the years. He was also one of the men that would soon be accused of having an affair with Dona Jones. Whatever the case, when Albert died in 1935, Davy sang at his funeral. When Frank died in 1940, Davy was one of his pallbearers. School teacher turned real estate and insurance agent, F.A. Glackmeyer, spoke at the banquet that night about Velisca's recent building boom. He was a neighbor of Jones and would later testify in two separate trials. Mayor F.M. Kelsey, a dentist who was not running for re-election and would be replaced by Ellie Lewis, would be instrumental in the hiring of the detective who would nearly ruin Frank's life. Lewis, an attorney, would become embroiled in that investigation and would end up as a witness in one of the trials that followed. But on the night of the commercial club banquet, all of that was still in the future. The main thing on Jones's mind in late October 1912 was the election, which was literally days away. After the smoke cleared, Frank was the winner. He lost in all of the larger towns, but the rural districts and the small towns, like Villisca, had handed the election to Frank Jones. His future must have looked bright at the time, but that would soon change. The year 1913 turned out to be a time of almost complete inactivity in the Velisca murder case. Few new leads were discovered and the investigation began to grow cold. That's not to suggest that the murders had been forgotten, though. Lawmen, detectives, doctors, and family members were all haunted by the night of June 9, 1912, as were the people of Velisca, who still felt a twinge of fear when the sun went down each day. Early in 1913, Charles Moore, J.B.'s father, passed away. He had been sick for some time and his death was not a surprise, but it meant more sorrow for the family. As the case grew colder, Attorney General George Cozen stopped dealing directly with the Villisca investigation, the family, and the detectives. He delegated it to an assistant attorney named Henry E. Sampson, who began hearing a lot about what a strange fellow Reverend Kelly was. In the early spring of 1913, he received a letter from a private detective that detailed information about the case and provided some lurid information about Kelly. The letter reported the minister to be a window peeker with unnatural sexual tendencies. He also ran up numerous debts and took loans with no intention of repaying them. Kelly talked incessantly about the murders, the letter added. Perhaps of more substance was the claim that he had taken a bloody shirt to a laundry in Council Bluffs, Iowa, a day or two after the murders. Sampson checked with County Attorney William Ratcliffe and was assured that the authorities knew about Kelly and that they were checking into the story of the bloody shirt. It was soon learned that a Bluffs City laundry employee named Cora Marquand had seen the shirt. She stated that it was wet when Kelly brought it in. The bloodstains had soaked all the way through the fabric and it looked to her like it had been soaked in water, likely in an attempt to wash out the stains before it was brought to the laundry. The letter about Kelly had been written by one of the detectives who was working on the case. He wanted money for expenses so that he could continue investigating the strange little minister and hoped the state of Iowa would provide it. 
Samson decided that Kelly, who was living in Nebraska by then, needed to be questioned by someone else before any additional funds could be allocated. By this time, the budget for investigating the case had been all but exhausted. Sending another paid detective on a trip that might be a waste of time was out of the question. So he contacted J.A. Tracy, Iowa's assistant state fire marshal, to go to Nebraska and have a talk with the minister. Tracy may have seemed an odd choice to be recruited as an investigator, but strangely, he wasn't. The state fire marshal's office had been created just two years earlier, and Tracy, who had been a U.S. deputy marshal for Northern Iowa, was named as the assistant. Tracy was in constant demand by local police departments and fire officials who wanted him to investigate their suspicious fires. It had not been the intent when creating the fire marshal's office, but Tracy became the first full-time employee of the state who was primarily a criminal investigator. Thanks to his experience, he was a good choice to interview Kelly. Tracy's report to Samson was brief and noncommittal. He traveled to Omaha, spoke with Kelly, and learned where he was on the day of the Moore murder, what he'd been doing in Villisca, and what happened at the church that night. After the program, Kelly had gone home with Reverend Ewing, but didn't sleep that night because he said he felt restless and uneasy. He left for the train depot early and there encountered a suspicious man with a dark complexion. He left on the 519 AM train for Macedonia, and the man got on the same train. His report may have been noncommittal, but privately, Tracy was disturbed by the odd little man. He had learned of some of Kelly's antics in Villisca and read the reports of his strange proclivities. Tracy and Samson both felt Kelly was a suspicious character who was worth watching, but they agreed there was not enough evidence for an arrest. Sheriff Jackson had a different opinion and felt more strongly about it. He was satisfied that Kelly had nothing to do with the crime. He thought Kelly was an eccentric, mentally unbalanced man, but a harmless one. There was no evidence, not even an allegation that Kelly had ever harmed anyone and to think that his first violent act was a multiple axe murder seemed difficult, if not impossible, to believe. At that time, Sheriff Jackson favored the idea that it had been some sort of religious cult, and if not that, then a traveling maniac riding the rails, killing, and then drifting through the Midwest until he decided to strike again. Meanwhile, Frank Jones came home at the conclusion of the 35th General Assembly, his first as state senator. Albert had taken care of business in his father's absence, but through letters, telephone calls, and frequent trips to Villisca, it was Frank Jones who made the decisions. Farm implement sales had been strong that summer, and most farmers found that it was a better year for crops than 1912. The bank was also doing well, although Jones was not generally involved in the day-to-day -day operations. He established policy, made decisions on officers, and reaped the financial rewards of his investment. But all was not perfect for the Jones family. Rumors about their involvement in the Moore-Stillinger murders persisted. People whispered that J.B. Moore had been seen with Albert Jones's wife, Dona, in places they shouldn't have been. Telephone operators told of listening in on calls that J.B. had made to Dona in which she told him, quote, it's all right to come over now. They claimed that Moore had given them boxes of chocolate as a bribe to keep the calls a secret. Aside from gossip, there was no real evidence that J.B. and Dona had ever been involved, but rumors persisted anyway. It's likely that not everyone believed the stories, but they were told and retold, and as time passed, many began to accept them as truth.
In the early spring of 1914, a contingent from Villisca that included Ross Moore and Dr. F.M. Kelsey, the town's former mayor, traveled to Des Moines to meet with the Attorney General George Cozen and his assistant Henry Sampson. Kelsey managed the reward fund for the Moore Stillinger murders and had taken a personal interest in trying to get the lagging investigation started again. He was likely involved when the Moore family decided it wanted to hire its own detective to work the case. It was his idea to meet with the Attorney General both to seek advice and hiring an investigator that state officials would work with and to ask for additional funding from the state. They were prepared to use the proceeds from J.B. Moore's insurance policy, plus a few hundred dollars in contributions that were on deposit. Sarah's father, John Montgomery, had pledged another $250 if needed. Even so, a top detective would cost at least $8 to $10 per day, plus expenses, and they had no idea how long the investigation might take. They were hoping the state might be able to help. At the meeting, Cozen agreed to offer more funds as long as the work that was being done was productive. He wanted to see a solution to the case as much as anyone. Cozen had put a lot of time and energy into the investigation, but had seen little happen with it outside of becoming a political liability. As far as recommendations for detectives went, Cozen had only one, the Burns Agency. Ross Moore had met with other agencies and solo detectives, but respected the attorney general's opinion. A request was made to the Burns Agency and a new detective was assigned to the case. And this is how a Texan named James Newton Wilkerson became part of the Villisca investigation. No one knew it when he arrived in town, but he would be the man who would literally destroy the investigation, warping it for his own gain, turning, twisting, and concocting evidence to inflate his own theories, and in the process, becoming an embarrassment to law enforcement in Iowa. In all honesty, the Villisca murders probably never would have been solved unless Billy the Axeman had been arrested after a future crime and confessed to them, but Wilkerson made sure of it. Wilkerson was 48 in the summer of 1914. He had studied law in Texas and had been admitted to the bar in 1890, but never practiced law in any conventional manner. He decided to become a detective instead and went to work for William J. Burns, who thought highly of him. He commanded a higher wage than most detectives working at the time and managed to bring in a greater number of rewards. When he arrived in Villisca, he claimed to be a Texas land agent, representing a group of investors who were interested in buying farmland in Iowa. it soon became obvious to most people, though, that he was asking more questions about the murders than looking at land. He spent his first few weeks listening to all of the rumors that had been going around town and reworking leads that had been exhausted by other detectives. Wilkerson also managed to make peace with Sheriff Jackson, who had been angered by another Burns detective, C.W. Toby, who had criticized the sheriff before an earlier suspect had been found and cleared. However, he was unable to patch things up with town constable Hank Horton who disliked Wilkerson from the beginning. As time passed, the animosity between them grew, in part because Wilkerson eventually announced that Frank Jones had been responsible for the murders, a position that Horton didn't agree with. Wilkerson spent time with Ross Moore and with J.B.'s former employees. He sought out those who spread rumors of an affair between J.B. and Dona Moore. Other detectives had heard the gossip that named Jones as a suspect, but had dismissed it. Wilkerson, however, did not and became determined to find any evidence that he could to make his theory fit the crime. 
I believe that Wilkerson was drawn to the idea of a Jones conspiracy because Jones was an important man, a wealthy businessman and a state senator. It would be quite an addition to Wilkerson's resume for him to say that he had brought down such a powerful figure in a murder case. And there was also the reward, which was growing all the time. Jones was an easier man to find than some elusive nameless killer who had slipped out of town years before, never to return. Jones was right there in Villisca, and in some ways, Wilkerson had public opinion on his side, since there were those in town who were more than willing to believe that gossip that was going around about the Jones family. At that point, Wilkerson just needed something that he could, quote, hang his hat on. A damning witness, a piece of evidence that would kick the case against Jones into full gear. The search started slowly. Wilkerson was still traveling in the early stages of his investigation, wrapping up cases that he had been working on when he was assigned to Villisca. During April and May, he spent as many days as possible in Montgomery County, learning about events and people and spending a lot of time with Sheriff Jackson. He was gathering facts and possibilities and spent much of his time watching Frank Jones. He visited his store, staked out his house and followed him around. He even once sat near him in church. At the end of the service, they shook hands, but Jones barely noticed him. He had no idea who the man was and certainly had no foreshadowing of the fact that the detective was going to make every effort to ruin his life. His first break came in late May. A woman contacted the attorney general's office in Des Moines and later met with Henry Sampson. Details about the meeting are vague and it was never clear if the woman actually had information about the murders or knew someone who did. The woman wished to remain anonymous and Sampson never recorded her name. After the meeting ended, Sampson contacted the Burns Agency and told them that someone needed to look into her story. Wilkerson and Villisca made the trip to Des Moines, met with Sampson, and then two days later traveled to Marshalltown, Iowa, a small town northeast of Des Moines. It seems nearly unbelievable today that Wilkerson would have based his entire case on the bizarre story that was going to be told to him by Vena Tompkins. But he was looking for a story, any kind of story, no matter how weird or colorful it was, upon which he could build his case against Frank Jones. It's hard to believe that the unconvincing tale would be enough, combined with accusations, gossip, and smears, to ultimately ruin a man's career and reputation. But Wilkerson was determined, and his defense and embellishment of the story proves it. The fact that Wilkerson visited Marshalltown at all shows that he was willing to pursue wild stories that had already been dismissed by other investigators, especially when they pertained to Frank Jones. Vena Tompkins had already been checked out by Hank Horton and Villisca's mayor, Ellie Lewis. A man named Fred Hokirk, who claimed to be a detective from Marshalltown, had visited Villisca a few months earlier and let it be known that he knew someone who might be able to provide important information about the murders for a price. Hoping for a reward for himself, Hokirk told Horton about Vena Tompkins. A few days later, Horton and Lewis traveled to Marshalltown to talk with her. Lewis was a practicing attorney and while young, was a well-educated man. He believed that between himself and Horton, they would be more than qualified to decide if the witness was believable. They learned that Tompkins and her family had been camped in Villisca in the fall of 1911 while her husband was working on a city street paving crew, but little else. They concluded the interview with Tompkins feeling she had no valuable information to offer. Wilkerson later contended that Tompkins wouldn't talk to them because Horton threatened her and that she was afraid of him because she knew that he'd been bought off by Frank Jones and was actually part of the so-called conspiracy. On June 2nd, Wilkerson took a train to Marshalltown where he met with Hokirk and eventually with Vena Tompkins. According to Hokirk, Tompkins had told his wife 
that she knew a terrible secret about the Velisca murders, including the identity of the people involved. When he was told this, Hokirk went to see Tompkins, but she was very secretive and vague about what she knew. Hokirk then shopped her around, hoping for a reward, but she would never tell anyone what her terrible secret was until she met Wilkerson. Even then, he had to drag it out of her, or at least that's the way he represented it, probably to brag about his investigative skills. Walkerson later told Tompkins' strange story in a detailed report to the Attorney General. He described the 36-year-old Tompkins as a, quote, remarkable witness, with little formal education but very smart. Her family name was Whipple and she had grown up in Guthrie County, Iowa. She had lived most of her life in Iowa, moving from place to place, and had spent a few years in North Dakota. When she was 16, she married a man named Dave Clark and had two sons with him. After years of cruel treatment and abuse by Clark, she took her youngest son and fled to North Dakota. She remained there for a few years and then returned to Iowa and sued Clark for divorce. She obtained custody of her sons, but Clark took the oldest boy to California and out of the court's jurisdiction for some time. Eventually, she agreed not to press charges against him for kidnapping the boy as long as Clark returned to Iowa and allowed her visitation rights. She told Wilkerson that she had been denied this privilege and only saw her son when she could arrange secret meetings. She was very afraid of possible continued violence by Clark, Wilkerson said, and this led the detective to make some promises to her in return for her testimony. Wilkerson was either moved by her story or, more cynically, claimed to be in order to obtain the information that he wanted from her. According to Tompkins, she was born and raised in an atmosphere of crime and had never been free of criminal influences, which she claimed to hate. Her entire family was made up of criminals, and many of them, as well as people where she grew up in Guthrie County, were part of a wide-reaching criminal organization that spread throughout the Midwest. She claimed to know the names and addresses of over 100 members of the gang. She was currently living with a gang leader named Elmo Tompkins and had several brothers who were also part of the gang, Clint Whipple, Harry Whipple, and another named, of all things, The Whipple. And no, I'm not making this up. Wilkerson claimed that after Hank Horton and Ellie Lewis interviewed Tompkins, she had received a letter from Jake Weems, an alleged gang leader who warned her that she was, quote, talking too damn much and that she'd better stop. He supposedly also enclosed a letter that she was to give to Fred Hokirk, which threatened him and told him that he would never be able to break up the gang. There is no indication that this small-time detective ever tried to tangle with the gang, and the alleged letter seems to have been concocted to make Hokirk seem like someone with whom hardened criminals would not want to tangle. The letter was signed number 96 which Tompkins claimed was Weems's number. She explained to Wilkerson that all of the gang members had secret numbers assigned to them that they frequently communicated in code, using only the numbers to identify themselves to one another. It was like a fantasy spun from the popular Nick Carter secret agent stories of the era, but Wilkerson apparently swallowed all of it including the fact that Vina had a brother named The. Elmo Tompkins, who worked as a bricklayer and laborer around Marshalltown, had been laying bricks on a job in Villisca, which is what brought Vina into contact with the Moore family before the murders. At the time, she was living in a camp along the East Nottoway River on the outskirts of town. She became acquainted, she claimed, with the Moore family and had been in their house. 
Around the time of the murder, she had been in Corning with her husband who was working there. However, several members of the gang, including her brothers Harry and The, had been in the vicinity of Villisca. She said that soon after the murder, she and Elmo had went to live in Redfield, Iowa, then Perry, where they stayed for a time, and then several other places before finally ending up in Marshalltown about six months before she met with Wilkerson. Tompkins told Wilkerson that she knew all the details about the murders in Villisca, who did it, who paid to have it done, why it was done, and everything about them. She had waited so long to come forward because soon after the murders had been committed, she left Elmo Tompkins due to his drinking and physical abuse. She had only delayed in leaving him because she had been unable to find out where her former husband was hiding her eldest boy. After she learned of his whereabouts, she left, but the gang soon found her and brought her back, threatening her with death if she left again. When she told him that she would rather die than be involved with him again, her children were threatened, so she reluctantly agreed to remain with them. All of this was very melodramatic. Oh, and there was more to come. It was Hokirk who finally convinced her to come forward, Wilkerson claimed. Soon after the detective began investigating her, who moved into a house near where she lived, cultivated her friendship, and got to know her family. A short time later, someone broke into his house at night and attacked him. Hokirk chased them into the yard and fired a few shots after the attacker, but he got away. Wilkerson believed the attacker was either Jake Weems or Elmo Tompkins, trying to force him off the case. According to Wilkerson, Vina Tompkins agreed to confess to all she knew on two conditions, namely that he would rescue her son from her former husband, Dave Clark, and get her and the boys to safety somewhere out of reach of the gang. After that, she said she would tell him everything. In his report, Wilkerson told the attorney general that he was sure that Tompkins was telling the truth and that her account fit with other facts in the case that she had no knowledge of. He added, I conclude that since her life and the life of her two boys will be pledges for her faithful performance on her part of the contract that I can safely negotiate with her. He then dramatically noted, with just how much personal safety to myself from the gang will depend somewhat upon judgment, discretion, cunning, but largely upon luck. Cozen and Samson were interested in the tale that Tompkins had to tell. However, it's also likely they had reservations about her and some elements of her story. Her character was in question. She appeared to have had a wild imagination. There was also the issue of Wilkerson having promised Tompkins safety in exchange for her information. In spite of this, Cozen felt the story needed to be looked into further, and he agreed to underwrite half of the expenses of the investigation. He may have warned Wilkerson about promising Tompkins safe haven since it's barely mentioned mentioned in Wilkerson's reports after that. He used other methods to get the story, which turned out to be even more questionable. The closing words of Wilkerson's report, which warned of the danger to himself that he was about to take on, became typical of his melodramatic style. For instance, when he wrote of his second meeting with Cozen and Samson in Des Moines, he referred to the other two men in attendance, Manage J.A.G. and Dr. K., the first man was J.A. Gustafson, manager of the Burns Detective Agency's Kansas City office, and the other was Dr. Kelsey, the Velisca dentist and former mayor who was working with the families and providing funds for the investigation. There was really no need to conceal their identities in the report aside from being dramatic. He also began signing his reports with a made-up code name for himself, Agent 33. It was a sign of bad things to come. Wilkerson met with Tompkins again on June 10th, but Agent 33 stated in his report that she wouldn't talk with him due to a remark that he had made to Hokirk, implying that the relationship between Hokirk and Tompkins was not strictly platonic. 
Hokert told Tompkins and she supposedly took offense. Wilkerson met with her again the next day, writing that it took a lot of persuasion, but he got back in her good graces again. However, she still refused to tell him her secret. He made plans to visit her again on June 12th, but it rained that day, so Elmo stayed home, canceling Wilkerson's visit. He seems to have avoided Elmo Tompkins completely. He often wrote about him, but never mentioned meeting him. Wilkerson spent the day with Hokirk discussing the case. As the two men were sitting on Hokirk's front porch watching the rain, Wilkerson saw a saleswoman going door to door in the neighborhood. This gave him an idea. He recalled an experience that Vena Tompkins said she'd had with a fortune teller. She claimed she had visited a psychic who had looked into her palm and told her she had a terrible secret on her mind. Her need to share this secret about the Velisca axe murders had led her to tell Mrs. Hokirk about it, who told her husband and eventually brought Wilkerson to her door. Wilkerson followed the saleswoman to a boarding house where she was staying, which I'm sure didn't seem creepy at all, and found out that she was part of a crew of women in town selling household remedies and cosmetics. The manager of the group was a woman from New York named Mrs. McIntyre, who he described as, quote, brilliant and talented. Wilkerson's plan, which was agreed to by Mrs. McIntyre, was to have her go to Vena Tompkins' house the following day under the pretense of selling her wares, but to also let Tompkins know that she possessed certain psychic powers. Wilkerson filled Mrs. McIntyre in about Vena's background, her previous marriage, her children, her troubled past, and more. Armed with this information, Mrs. McIntyre was to convince her of her occult powers, gain her confidence, and then tell her she should tell her secret to a man in whom she could trust completely, James Wilkerson. Mrs. McIntyre called on Vena on Friday, June 19th, and Vena Tompkins took the bait. Wilkerson never stated how much he paid McIntyre for her work, but to him, it had been well worth the money. In his next report, Wilkerson said that he stayed away from Vena over the weekend so that she could mull over the psychic's advice. He waited until Monday, a day that he knew she went downtown. He followed her and accidentally bumped into her outside his store. She told him that she wanted to see him. He arranged to come by her house at 1.30 on the following afternoon, and their meeting lasted for four hours. Wilkerson said that they mostly talked about fortune tellers, especially the one who told Tompkins that she had been sent by God to tell her she should trust the detective. Their meeting lasted until 5.30 p.m., close to the time when Elmo would be home, so there was not enough time to talk about the murders. They made arrangements to meet the next day at a nearby cemetery. It was in the graveyard that Vena Tompkins finally told her story, which in turn was passed on by Wilkerson. Here's the story, and it's a doozy. In the fall of 1911, Elmo and Vena Tompkins, Vena's brother, Harry Whipple, his wife, Edith, and one child from each family traveled to Villisca. The men were looking for work on the crew that was paving Third Avenue, the town's main street. The men were hired and worked long days in town while the women spent their time at camp, cooking, washing, and taking care of the children. Near the camp was an old building that had once been a slaughterhouse, which many of the local merchants used as a place to dump discarded crates. Vina and Edith went there often to get wooden crates that could be broken up and used as firewood. One day, which Vina thought was in mid-September, Vina, Edith, and Edith's daughter were walking to the slaughterhouse when the little girl stepped on a thorn. Edith returned to camp with the child and Vina continued to look for crates. As she neared the site, she heard voices and ducked down to hide behind some thick brush. 
She said she was very close to three men, but they never saw her. She described them in a general way. The first was in his 50s with gray hair and a beard. The second was slender and clean shaven and appeared to be in his mid 20s. And the third was a rough looking man that she didn't see clearly. According to the report, she heard the older man say, he deserves killing. He must be killed. He's got to be killed. And if it can't be done any other way, it has to be done while he's asleep, even if he has to be chloroformed. The third man talked of getting Levi to do the job. He made several references to a gang and mentioned the name Whipple. This attracted Vina's attention. Whipple was, of course, her maiden name, and Levi Wood was a member of the gang she often talked about. There was talk about money, and the older man said he had it, but would have to be careful and not take it out of the bank all at once. There was also discussion about an escape route and dealing with the city marshal. At that point, she claimed the older man said, the marshal is fixed. He'll never bother anybody that does it, and he will see that nobody else bothers him while they are getting away. After the men left, Vina returned to camp. She said she didn't sleep that night. She cried and pleaded with Elmo to leave Velisca. She wouldn't tell him about what she'd heard because she feared that her brother, Harry Whipple, was involved and was afraid that if Elmo found out, he would get dragged into a murder scheme. Elmo was drunk and beat her, but he eventually agreed to leave. The women went to town the next day to get some things for the trip, and while there, Vina said they encountered a big fellow, and he had a mean look on his face and began looking closely at Edith and I. She asked and learned that the man was Marshal Hank Horton. The next day, they were preparing to leave when the mules that drew their wagon got stuck in the mud at the riverbank. The women and children were on the bridge when two men came by and asked if they were alone. The men were the oldest and youngest of the three men that Vina had heard planning the murder. Venus said she was rude to them, hoping they'd leave, and they did. Moments later, a man came driving by in a wagon with a load of coal, and she asked him who the men were that had just passed by. She said she thought he told her their names were Jones or Stone. She wasn't sure exactly. The mules were pulled out of the mud, and the families left for Clarinda. A few days later, they were traveling to Corning, where Elmo again found work laying bricks. They relocated every few months, mostly living out of the wagon until eventually settling in Marshalltown. Months after leaving Villisca, she read about the murders in the newspaper and knew that the plot had been carried out. When she saw the location of the house, she realized she had been inside, having been given a drink of water and had met the Moore family. Wilkerson's report states that Vina Tompkins told him she had two more encounters with Hank Horton. She said the first took place a few months after the murders. She and her husband were sleeping and heard a dog barking downstairs. Elmo refused to go and investigate, so she went herself. She claimed she found Hank Horton sitting in her living room and that he tried to grab her. She fled upstairs and Horton left. She said the next time she saw the marshal, a few weeks later, when he and Mayor Lewis came to see her, asking what she knew about the murders. And that wasn't the end of it. While visiting her husband's family, she overheard someone say that they planned to kill George Green, Vina's brother-in-law. When she asked why, they replied, he has squawked and tipped off about the Velisca murder. She answered that it hadn't been George who talked, that it had been her. When one of Elmo's brothers pulled a knife and came at her, Vina took it away and threatened him with it. He was still sober enough to know she intended to use it and backed away. George Green escaped and hid out in Omaha for a few months. By then, the matter seemed to have blown over and he returned. Venus said she had a conversation with Levi Wood and that she believed incriminated him. The two of them got into some sort of argument over money and Vita told him that he had none. Wood replied that he had more money than she knew about. 
She asked him if he had gotten it in Velisca and Wood went into a rage. He told her to never say anything about the quote Velisca deal or she and her boy would be killed. Tompkins was sure that Levi Wood was the murderer and that other members of the gang had participated. In his report to the Attorney General, Wilkerson said it was clear that the men seen at the old slaughterhouse by Vita that day had been Frank Jones, his son Albert, and number 96, Jake Weems. There is no record to show how Cozen and Samson felt about the sensational report. The two men were interested and agreed that the story needed to be looked in further, but there were parts of it that were beyond belief, making the entire thing pretty questionable. The two law enforcement officials must have also questioned Wilkerson's shady tactic of hiring a phony fortune teller, then taking the subject to a graveyard for the interview where nothing could really be written down or recorded. This created a dilemma that was apparently not considered initially by the attorney general. That the report was Wilkerson's embroidered version of what Vina Tompkins said, not necessarily what she actually told him. Much of it she would later deny. But whether Wilkerson influenced her or distorted her story, he had a report in his hands that outlined a murder conspiracy masterminded by Frank Jones. Wilkerson's theory would later change. He later focused on the slaughterhouse plot with Frank and Albert Jones being involved with Harry Whipple. He also had different ideas at different times about Jake Weems. By the time that Vena Tompkins appeared in court to set the record straight about Jones, Wilkerson didn't need her. He had other witnesses and evidence that he believed would convict Jones. Vena Tompkins was merely a tool, a means to an end, and a way for Wilkerson's real investigation to begin. On June 16, 1914, he traveled to Villisca with the intention of confronting Frank Jones, or so he claimed. When he got there, Agent 33 learned that Jones was in New York attending his daughter's graduation exercises. A short report to the Attorney General about the failed interrogation was accompanied by his expense account and a bill for his services. Wilkerson offered no clue as to how he attended to approach Jones, but later when he questioned Albert Jones and Burt McCall, he began by learning what he could by engaging in friendly conversation and then watching their reactions after asking a few surprise questions. Wilkerson was an expert at asking carefully phrased, very leading questions and twisting around the answers. He later printed and sold to the public a list of 100 questions that he wanted Jones to answer, a few of which he likely would have asked him on June 16th if the Senator had been in town and if Wilkerson really intended to talk to him. After failing to find Jones, Wilkerson went to his office and wrote another report to the Attorney General, which he titled Corrections, Memoranda, and Suggestions. Wilkerson wrote that he had made a number of conclusions in the Velisca case and he offered information that he noted should be assumed was true about the murders. Point by point, he wrote first, that the murderer was stark naked except for gloves. Wilkerson explained that he thought the killer was naked because no bloody clothing was ever found. It would have been impossible, he said, for the murders to have occurred without soaking the perpetrator's clothing with blood. He was convinced that the killer had walked boldly away from the house in plain sight so that he could not have been carrying a bundle of clothing with him. He had cleaned up, Wilkerson believed, and then had gotten dressed again. He wore gloves, Wilkerson concluded, because no fingerprints had been left behind on the axe. Even if there had been fingerprints, the local officials lacked the methods or the knowledge to collect and analyze them. More likely, the axe was simply wiped off. Second, he believed that the mirror was draped in the room where Sarah and JB were killed because of the killer's superstitions. 
Wilkerson's theory about the superstition surrounding the mirror had nothing to do with spirits of the dead, as some people assume when they learned that mirrors and reflective surfaces were covered. He stated that he heard of a belief where it was bad luck to see oneself naked in a mirror. He also cited the idea that many killers were superstitious, citing an example of Sicilian mafia killers who kissed their victims on the lip to keep their ghosts from pursuing them after death. This doesn't get any better from here. Third, he did not believe that the meal prepared in the kitchen and was partially eaten had been arranged by the killer. Believe it or not, he may have been right about this one, although I believe he named the wrong person as the intruder who ate the meal. Wilkerson believed that the food was eaten by Lee Van Gilder, a nephew of J.B. Moore, who entered the kitchen through the back door, never realizing what had happened in the house. Wilkerson surmised that the young man had been in the kitchen eating and was discovered by the killer. He rushed out of the house, barely escaping with his life, and was so thoroughly frightened that he refused to speak about it afterward. Supposedly, Van Gilder was seen in the park around midnight on the night of the murders. The murders were alleged to have taken place around midnight or soon after, based on the time when the victims arrived home after church. Wilkerson heard around Velisca that Van Gilder had told his girlfriend that, quote, had he not been drunk on the night of the murder, he could have prevented it, unquote. He was also informed that the young man had been uneasy about his personal safety ever since it happened. I don't think this is true, but I do think a second person was in the house that night. He may have eaten the food and covered the mirrors too, but we'll get to that later on. Fourth, Wilkerson didn't name names, but said that he believed that the main actor in the instigation of the murders was driven by jealousy, a hatred for J.B. Moore, and an animosity toward him because of his business practices and infidelity. He was not the husband of the woman whose lack of chastity had caused the tragedy, he said, but her father-in-law. Since this was a private report to the attorney general, there is no reason why Wilkerson or maybe we should say Agent 33, needed to refer to the Jones family in such obscure terms. He was obviously referring to the Joneses. Wilkerson had been listening to all the gossip that had been swirling around town for the last two years and had created his own scenario for it. He believed that Frank Jones was in love with and possibly having an affair with his daughter-in-law. J.B. Moore was not only rumored to be having an affair with Dona, he was also a business rival, which gave Jones two reasons to hate him. Wilkerson based his belief in the affair on the fact that Jones's wife never accompanied him to church, but Dona often did, and Frank occasionally accompanied her home. After following Jones for some time, he also came to the conclusion that Jones was a, quote, amorous individual, and he claimed he once saw him trying to make a date with a woman who was a stranger in town. Jealousy about Dona's affairs would not have affected her husband, Wilkerson thought. Albert knew about Dona's dubious morals when he married her. And Wilkerson wrote, I am also reliably informed that she has doubtful associations with undoubted purpose among numerous male admirers, which the young man must know and has taken no steps to prevent. The real character of Frank Jones, Wilkerson said, when brought to light, will show that he is, quote, a man of strong passion, unscrupulous instinct, extreme cunning, and one when stirred by jealousy and love affairs, added to extreme jealousy and business affairs, will be ferocious in the extreme. Fifth, and here's the weirdest one. He believed that the man who was at the First Methodist Church on the night of the murders, pretending to be a holy roller preacher, was connected to the crime and may have actually been the killer. There's no clue about where Wilkerson came up with this idea, but it could have been influenced by Sheriff Jackson's belief that the Moors had been killed by a group of religious fanatics. 
Wilkerson couldn't really connect religious maniacs with Frank Jones, but connecting them to Jones' church seemed to be the next best thing. It's obvious from his report that Wilkerson, like many other people at the time, had a prejudice against the Holy Rollers, the sect that was definitely outside the norm of mainstream Christianity in that era. As mentioned, they spoke in tongues during their services, dancing, jumping up and down, running through the church, shouting, crying, falling to the ground and passing out. It's not surprising that the outsiders who witnessed these sessions found them to be both bizarre and a little frightening. While it may seem a little strange that the staid members of the First Methodist Church of Villisca would offer the use of their building to the exuberant Holy Rollers, it can be explained by a simple impulse of generosity to fellow Christians. To Wilkerson, though, nothing was ever simple. He suggested that the Methodist pastor had been talked into loaning the church to the Holy Rollers for the night by Frank Jones. In Wilkerson's opinion, Frank practically ruled the church as the superintendent of the Sunday school and was the dictator of its policies. Because of his wealth, he donated heavily to the church and in return was allowed to run it as he saw fit from his customary pew near the front. It was this particular pew, Wilkerson pointed out, that he'd occupied during every service except on the night of the murders. On that night, he sat near the door and left the service early, which was unprecedented for him. Wilkerson believed that he went outside early to check on the progress of the Children's Day program and to find out when the Moors might be leaving for home. A simpler explanation might be that Jones was just as annoyed with the Holy Rollers' form of worship as other people were at the time. He most likely wanted to be there to keep an eye on things, and he chose to sit near the door so he could leave early, which he did. It was very unlikely there was anything more sinister to it than that. The way that Wilkerson twisted around Jones' behavior that night was just as ridiculous as his claim that the leader of the Holy Rollers revival killed the Moors and the Stillinger girls. He had absolutely no evidence to back up such a claim, but he didn't care. All he wanted to do was plant the seed of doubt, get people talking, and then fan the flames into something he could pretend was actual evidence. Wilkerson threw out this information to the attorney general and then followed it up with a blatant attempt to solicit more work and generally make himself appear indispensable. He pushed for the questioning of two local farmers who claimed to have seen Albert Jones with two strange men on the morning after the murders. He wanted to nail down the whereabouts of Harry Whipple and other members of the so-called gang at the time of the murders. He wanted to dig through Jones's financial records and look for unexplained expenditures around the time of the murders, especially funds drawn from a bank in Morton Mills, in which he maintained Jones had a secret interest. He also wanted to question those who saw Jones at church that night and press Van Gilder for the truth about what happened at the Moore House. Wilkerson was also very concerned with getting a confession out of Hank Horton, whom he disliked and distrusted. He was convinced the lawman had something to do with the conspiracy. He wanted the marshal's movements on the night of the murders thoroughly researched and wanted to know why he had been harassing Vena Tompkins. Agent 33 was also sure he could force a confession from Albert Jones if given the chance. He told the attorney general that he'd heard a rumor that Albert was out of the house on the night of the murders and that his mother heard a sound, went to investigate, and found her son sneaking inside. This should be thoroughly investigated, he stated. In closing, he wrote, I would also suggest that local officials be kept away as much as possible. This case ought to be handled through the Attorney General's office strictly. Local officials have always acted strangely. And who was the primary investigator for the Attorney General's office at the time? None other than James Wilkerson. He was simply pushing for more work. 
The report held little, if any, substance. Wilkerson was simply showing that the rumors that had been around for two years had grown a little, but were basically still the same and were just as baseless. And not only that, Wilkerson proved that he was spending too much time chasing down rumors to do proper research. He wrote that Jones might have an interest in the bank at Morton Mills, where he allegedly kept his conspiracy slush fund, but everyone knew about Jones's involvement with the bank. He was its president. The fact was posted in the bank's regular front page newspaper advertisements. Henry Sampson, who dealt directly with Wilkerson, must have questioned the whole unlikely premise that the detective was putting forth, as well as the impossible complexity of the plot. But he grudgingly admitted that Wilkerson was asking questions that needed to be answered, like, did Van Gilder really say he could have prevented the murder? Did Senator Jones behave oddly at church that night? Was he really having an affair with his daughter-in-law? Sampson recommended to his boss that the investigation continue. Attorney General Cozen, who certainly didn't know at the time that Wilkerson's growing conspiracy theory was soon to include him, read the report, paid the bill, and agreed there was still work to be done. He had no idea. He just let a mad dog off his leash. When we return for our next episode, we'll be taking a look at the last known murder attributed to Billy the Axeman and see how one of the survivors of the crime has been forever linked to the murders of Villisca by the unscrupulous detective, James Wilkerson. There are dark days ahead. So lock the doors tonight, bolt the windows, and pull the covers up over your head. The Axeman may still be out there somewhere. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. Just because I think it's dumb doesn't mean it's not legit. <laughs> it just it was yeah. just it was interesting to me. Maybe it is for real. It was just very interesting Whatever. the way she weaved it in and out of casual conversation. All right, All right we're ready. Everybody, good. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in season three, which we call Murdered in Their Beds, the true story of the Midwest axe murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. And here we are. And here we are. Another episode. We're back. We are back. And we're back in Villisca. Yes. So, yeah. we We wandered away last time, so... Yeah, it's been a weird kind of timeline. I know the way we're doing I know, things. But now we are going to be chronological from this point on. So no more jumping back and forth. Awesome. Okay. Although cool. nobody complained about it being no, confusing. Or probably anything. just I me. Just to, yeah. Just not, <laughs> probably, no, just not knowing. Just you. Yeah. I'm like, okay, next week we'll be here, and you're like, oh well, actually, <laughs> not exactly. Not so much. Um. So what's going on, man? We got some upcoming events. You want to yeah, talk about? Yeah, we've got those? the conference still coming up. Uh, it is now uh, less than a month away. And um, we are running out of seats. And I, I just keep wanting to say, if you haven't signed up yet, 
uh, I'm so disappointed in you. Yeah, what have you been well, doing? Does that help? I mean, I, I don't know. Guilt If them. that gets people out off their, you know, procrastination. Anyway, uh, we, we don't have a lot of seats left. So if you're hoping to attend, uh, we would love to see you there. Um, Cody will be, uh, we'll have a booth set up for the American Hauntings podcast. Cody will be there. Uh, I'm sure probably uh, recording people's accounts and stories again this yeah, year. Yeah, I like think that's did last the plan. Year. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. So uh, we've got some things going for that. And, you know, it's a great event. We just have, we have a lot of great speakers, tons of vendors, and it's going to be another good year. And yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. So th- we th- hope to see people there. I think there will only be one more episode, maybe, that comes out. I think so. I think we've got conference. one more before the conference. Right. So, so if you were ever the kid that was isolated alone on the playground because you talked about <laughs> weird stuff, come to this conference and yeah. you'll be surrounded. Among friends. Yeah, you'll yeah. be with friends for yeah. sure. What else we got? Exactly. So, well, in July, we have an evening with the Black Dahlia, one of our evening with dinner events. Uh, In August, we've got the evening with the Axe Man. And I keep wanting to say this is going to, that it will be at the end of our series of shows, but who knows? Really convinced that it will be. Uh, But it it is a fun time. I I just did it. couple of weeks ago, we were in, um, gosh, I guess it's been a month ago now. We were in Iowa uh, with some friends Mm -hmm. and um, I had did the presentation on it. We had a really good crowd at the Granger house in Marion, Iowa. That was a lot of fun. And, uh, and then, and okay, you know, another inside baseball thing. Yeah. We actually haven't gone yet, but by the time you hear this, we will have already gone and been back. But Lisa and I are going to the Velisca Axe murder house, uh, next weekend, which will be May 11th. But like I said, by the time you hear this, we'll have already gone and come news, back. Yeah. But uh, we are getting ready to go. So Lisa's never been before. So we're excited to do that. That'll I still want to see the video that you have. I actually head. found the DVD of it. Nice. I do have okay. it. Um, I do have it. I, I thought I had lost it and I found it the other day uh, when we were moving the offices. I actually found it. So I do have it. So, awesome. Yeah, it's it's it is pretty cool. So yeah, really cool. I'll, it's a cool I'll, event. I'll have to find so. a DVD player and I'll check well, it out. Well, I think you played on your computer. So it should be fine. Perfect. So there you go. Uh, anyway, um, and it won't be long. We'll be releasing our schedule of fall events, believe it or not. Uh, we're already getting to that point of the year. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, Ghost of the River Road tours in Alton again, Lisa and I are. And then I've got some of the some new evening with events, some that we haven't done before. Uh, the Lemp family is one that we're planning. All right. uh, St. Louis exorcism is one we're planning. Uh, I may be doing one of, and, and this is not for sure yet. It depends on the kind of response we get, but thinking about doing an evening with the 27 club okay. and doing the, the, you know, the rock and roll curses that I did at the conference last year. Yeah. People really like that. So, uh, we'll see. We're not for sure yet, but, um, it won't be long. We're putting that schedule up so people can, you know, celebrate the Halloween season with us and we'll be, have some, some cool new stuff. Awesome. Coming up, you know, so. I just want to say evening with the ax man does sound like a rock and roll event. Yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah it does. And yeah. then now that I know you're doing the limp family one, I'm, I'm just saying I've plugged this before, but if you want, Character actors there. I can be <laughs> drunk and depressed like yeah. nobody's yeah. business. Yeah, we all can. You know, German drunk and depressed. So yeah, um, I so I'm I'm all for it. We got hands up all around. So <laughs> stay tuned. Yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. So before we get started, we have a listener review from iTunes. And again, when you rate and review the show on iTunes, it 
says something to their algorithm to show the show to more people. And it just helps us get our word out and, and get the podcast out there to more people. So this review says, I love listening to your podcast. It's an awesome mix of lore, history, and personal opinion. I always look forward to the weekly episodes. And that's from Thanatos20. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but the the screen names are tough. Screen names are tough. Yeah. But thank you so much for the review. Uh, We really appreciate it. And, you know, I love getting to read the comments. Troy and I text each other all the time about, hey, we got a new review, (laughs) you know, and sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. But, you know, we still have that great review from I am. I I can't get past the guy who loves the podcast, wrote this great review and and gave us one star because I think he thought that meant good. I know, and I wanted and I really to stop listening. I don't know because I've said it about ten times. Now, yeah, but that's okay. He's probably listening, and he's like, "What idiot did that?" Yeah, you know, it's just, all right. So I'm not. I know I'm not going to say I'm not going to worry about it, but boy, I just keep worrying about yeah, it. Yeah, you know, so. keeps keeps us up <laughs> nights. But okay, so let's dive into the story. So this is summer, fall, 1912 in yeah. Villisca, Iowa. And yeah, 1912 and 13, really. I right, mean, we're yeah. moving ahead. Yeah. We're moving past the murders. <laughs> We're moving past the murders, but they don't seem to go away, you know? Right, right. And we're going to focus in for a little while on Frank Jones. And he seems to kind of have his own set of problems right now because there's a lot of gossip uh, in town about J.B. Moore having an affair with Donna Jones, who's Albert's wife. And there's also talk about the bad blood that supposedly existed between Jones and Moore over some business matters. Right. Now, we mentioned that, I think, in yeah, some of our earlier episodes. Yeah, earlier episodes. Right. A lot but, of this is sort of just updating what happened next. Right, which know? is good because yeah. I'm, I forgot. It's been so a while. I'm, I'm some sure of the it's listeners. been a while. Yeah. Yeah. So Frank has other things on his plate, though. He's running for Senate in the 8th district and he's speaking at a Velisca commercial club banquet and many of the characters there that night are going to come into play later right, right. we'll so, hear more about them later right on. so we have albert f davy who um had the songbird of Velisca song he's a musician <laughs> yeah. uh f.a glackmeyer is that how you pronounce it i believe so yes jones's neighbor eventually testified in two separate trials mayor f.m kelsey who's also a dentist because that's a thing yeah um who would hire a detective that uh, kind of went after frank later and then ellie lewis an attorney who would also later be a witness at he trial. Turned, yeah, he's the next. He was the next mayor of Villisca. Right. right. Okay. So we're gonna we're gonna dive into those people later on. But I just kind of yeah, want to we'll set talk the more scenery. about them later. Yeah. Yeah. They'll 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 appear later. But that night, Frank wins the election. Yes. So all is good and well. Is everything good? Well, is that I, how it know, ends? Um, no, that is not how it ends. Unfortunately, I think that was off to a good start for old Frank, but things didn't. Didn't didn't go well. Did not so. go well. So we're going to uh, speed forward a little bit to next year, 1913. The investigation begins to go even colder. Uh, Charles Moore, J.B.'s father, passes away. Henry E. Sampson, assistant attorney, is hand, is handed the case pretty yeah, much. I, I, I think the attorney down, general had, had enough by then. I mean, he had other things on his plate. Right. You know, and he moved it on to an assistant. Um, it was becoming a liability for him. Yeah. Because he was, you know, technically the top law enforcement official in Iowa. And here was this, you know, the, the most gruesome mass murder ever occurred in the history of the state was still hanging out there. Right. And nothing had been done. They were no closer to solving it than they had been the year before. And I think that he was you know, wanting to get this away from him. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of handed things off to an assistant. Right. If we got to protect, protect his record, yeah, I, exactly. I would guess. Yeah. That's yeah. What I'm thinking and too. that, that shit rolls downhill. So, yeah. 
Um, so Samson receives a letter with a lot of info about our friend, Reverend Kelly, yeah, our, our old buddy. Yeah. And the, the letter about Kelly eventually find out had been written by one of the detectives who was working on the case. Um, he wanted money for expenses so he could continue investigating the strange little minister. And he was really hoping that the state of Iowa would provide it, but yeah. there was just and, no money. And, and just as a reminder, yeah. um, about the detectives, I mean, this guy was not affiliated in any way with law enforcement. These were, you know, as a reminder, these were guys who had come in and kind of took cases on spec, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. with the idea that, you know, kind of like a, an ambulance chasing attorney, you know, if they win the uh, case yeah. for you, they get paid. And that's kind of what this was, too. These guys were just trying to, you know, get expenses from the state and in hopes that they could solve the case and then collect the reward for themselves and for whatever agency they work for. And there were a lot of these guys. Yeah. Um, you know, and as things move ahead, you know, when Ross Moore and then the, the old mayor and stuff come to see the attorney general, they're hoping to get a recommendation because the Moore families decided they want to hire their own detective. Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, well, you know, you should you should talk to the Burns agency. I'm sorry I jumped ahead out of your, no, 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 it's your fine. Kelly stuff. But I wanted to mention that, you know, remind everybody what was going on with, you know, there weren't any co- at this point, there were really no cops digging into this anymore. Yeah. They just couldn't. I mean, they had to, you know, had to move on to something else. Right. Yeah. And only the sheriff, the, the the county sheriff was the only one who was really keeping this case open. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And I mean, I still love the idea of the freelance detective. Right. I, oh, idea, yeah. Yeah. Know? It's a different time. Man. It's uh, it's it's problematic in its own Sherlock way. Which Holmes kind of... consulting detective. Yeah. That's a, and that's exactly the same things that he was doing, you know. Right. So. Right. And it gets it gets problematic, which we'll kind of discuss <laughs> yeah. in a little while. But um, so Samson's like, hey, there's no money. But he, he decided to contact uh, J.A. Tracy, who is Iowa's assistant state fire marshal, to yeah. go to Nebraska yeah. and have a talk with a minister. Yeah. That which, needed an explanation. Yeah. Which, so which I, seems, I provided it, but it, it did seems seem weird. But, but Tracy <laughs> yeah. becomes the first full-time employee of the state who was primarily a criminal investigator. Right. Well, I mean, he used to be a U.S. Marshal. Yeah. So he was a he was a lawman and then took this job as a, you know, to get off the constant being on the road thing, took this job as an assistant fire marshal, which put him right back on the road because yeah. then everybody who had a suspicious fire contacted him to come investigate it. So, you know, when there was no state police back then, um, this was the only guy they had on the payroll for the state that yeah. was investigating crimes. So he just, he knew this guy knew what he was doing. So he tapped him to go find out what he could about Reverend Kelly. Yeah. He seems like a good person. I mean, yeah, I think he, yeah, anybody. I think he had his act together yeah. more than most of these guys did. Right. So Frank Jones gets back from the 35th general assembly and, uh, rumors about JB Moore and Donna continue. And I think this would, this is a weird thing, but like they kind of, some of these rumors persisted because they got outed, quote unquote, because of like telephone operators listening in. Well, on Well, that's the story. And, you know, again, you've got all these rumors and all this gossip mm-hmm. in a town that at the time had about twenty five hundred people in it. Yeah. So it was a decent sized town for rural Iowa at the time. And people love to talk. And we talked about this before. Frank Jones was a target for a lot of people, you know, the haves and the have nots. Yeah. You know, and he was a guy who. You know, while he donated to a lot of charitable causes and such, he also had already had a reputation before he opened his bank and his, you know, his implement company for being uh, tough to deal with. You know, people who borrow money and he's coming around, you know, right, acting right. like a leg breaker, trying to get money out of people. So he already had this reputation. I'm sure he crossed a lot of people and I'm sure that, you know, he had, you know, had the biggest house in town and he had a lot of money and 
you know, it made him a target and people love to gossip. It's the same way now when, you know, you, you see the British tabloids want to talk about the royal family yeah. or, you you know, or, you know, people, you know, BuzzFeed's bitching about Kim Kardashian. You know, it's just people with a lot of money and they, they're targets. And so you've taken that and you've put it at, you know, we've gone back a hundred years and you've put it into this microcosm of this tiny town. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were, it was probably a lot of bitterness toward him. You know, and even the people who liked him may have contributed to these rumors because it was something to talk about. Yeah. You know, it's it sure beat not worrying about the fact that you don't have indoor plumbing. You know what I mean? Or you don't have electricity in your house or you don't have a telephone. So let's we don't have anything else to talk about. Let's stand around and talk over the back fence about Frank Jones or whoever. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, did you hear this? Did you hear that? Yeah. So unfortunately, you know, I, I. I, I've always painted him as a, as a fairly sympathetic character, but chances are I might not have liked him if I had lived in Villisca at the time. Who knows? Yeah. You know, but on the other hand, he didn't deserve what what will happen to him. We're not even there yet, and I don't want to get too far ahead yeah. of the story, but he doesn't deserve the things that are said about him or the things that happen to him as this case drags on for literally years. Now, this, these, these episodes will not go on for years, right. I promise. But, you know, the, the whole case did. It went on for years and years till after World War I. That's how long this went on. Mm-hmm. So anyway, go ahead. No problem. Yeah, I'm, well, it's interesting. Maybe yeah. we're, we're always looking for a distraction, you know, yeah, no matter what so the too. year. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think you just want to talk bad about other people so you can feel a little bit better about yeah, what's going on in exactly. your life. So we're going to fast forward a little bit even more to 1914. Ross Moore and Dr. F.M. Kelsey meet with Attorney General George Cawson and Henry Sampson. Sorry, there's a right. lot of names. Right. Uh, to get the investigation started again. Yeah, and it's two years have gone by now. Right. Yeah. Right. So... Th- they, they want to get something going. So they get James Newton Wilkin, Wilkerson from the Burns, Burns Agency on the case. And Burn, Burns Agency is one of the big That was one of the big people. ones. Aside from the Pinkertons, this was the other big detec- detective agency in the yeah. country at the time. It's the only other one I'd ever heard of yeah. aside from yeah. Pinkerton. So uh, as you said, he would be the man who would literally destroy the investigation, <laughs> warping yeah. it for his own gain, turning, twisting, concocting evidence to inflate his own theories, and in the process, becoming an embarrassment to law enforcement yeah. in Iowa. I mean, there's some crazy shit that goes on in this episode with his with his stories and stuff. But yeah. You haven't seen anything yet. Yep. Trust me. Yep. Uh, yeah. It's, it's going to get a lot worse. Before it gets better. Just wait. So he, yeah. ma- he makes peace with Sheriff Jackson, who uh, who had been burned before by, you know, detectives and things. But he did not sit well still <laughs> with Hank Horton. Right. And Wil- Wilkerson eventually announced that Frank Jones was responsible for the murders. Right. And, of course, tied Hank Horton into it, too. He just picked whoever he didn't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't get along with Hank Horton, who was... I mean, let's be honest, this guy hadn't done anything wrong. He was a small town marshal who was way out of his depth when it came to investigating a murder, but he tried. He didn't sign up for that. No, he put it, but he put every effort into it that he could. And um, he saw, he saw right through Wilkerson. Mm -hmm. When he came to town, he saw that he was a a con artist and he saw it right away. The two of them didn't get along. They never got along. And so Wilkerson, to try to get him out of his hair, just painted him as part of the conspiracy, his so-called conspiracy that he cooked up. And um, I mean, there's another guy who got a really raw deal, but it didn't do as much damage to him because Hank didn't have as much to lose as Frank Jones did. Yep. That makes sense. So, yeah, Wilkerson's he's more interested in rewards and making yeah. theories fit crimes. Well, and he was a showboat. Yeah. I mean, he just loved the attention. Yep. You know. Absolutely. So he eventually follows up on essentially what I would call like a dead lead from Vina Tompkins. Oh, man. Who talked yeah. about a gang 
Um, okay, we gotta dive into this just a little bit. One of the members is <sighs> really named the Whipple. Like <laughs> yeah, first her, name she, the. She claims she had a brother named the. <laughs> and I just like his I, legal you know, name. I don't know that this guy ever actually showed up anywhere except yeah. in secondhand stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that. Well, spoiler alert. Later, she will deny most of this story. Mm-hmm. Um, so my guess is that she had a story that she told that Wilkerson then turned into, you know, uh, this melodrama, yeah. you know, um, that, that, that made very little sense and, you know, was just this completely crazy story that he made up so that he could have these shadowy figures that no one could call into, you know, because they're all criminals, right? which is the way you do it. When you're going to con- create a conspiracy, you want to make sure that the people who are, that you name to be involved can't ever be caught yeah. and pulled into the story to tell the truth. Right. So he just made up a bunch of people. And uh, even if they existed, nobody would have ever found them. So, but it sounded convincing because he, I mean, it doesn't sound convincing at all. Yeah. But at in 1914, it sounded convincing. And uh, so he put together this elaborate conspiracy of gang members who had committed these murders, although you'll notice that he never mentioned why yeah. they ever did them because he didn't know. So he didn't come up, he didn't try to put any of that in and he used this poor woman as his, you know, this is where I got the, this is his deep throat. This is where he got all the right. information from. Um, and then later she'll be hauled into court and then told that, you know, if you tell a different story, you're going to go to jail for perjury. And the story, as you're going to find out in later episodes, the story's going to change. It, um, but Wilkerson never stopped. I don't, he, he had this Frank Jones thing between his teeth and he just refused to let go of it. Mm-hmm. And because he made an easy target, yeah, you know, it's the same reason that people like to gossip about him. Suddenly you had, you know, you had a fall guy for your conspiracy because people desperately needed someone to be guilty for what happened. Right. And, and as we'll also later find, they end up taking another character from our story and putting him on trial twice yeah. for murders because they just didn't have anybody else. So they just picked the weirdest person they could find. Um, so I know you all know who I'm talking yes. about, but, and we'll get to that later. But for now, we've got this, you know, this con artist detective who is doing everything he can to ruin Frank Jones um, to the point that eventually um, Frank will take him to trial for, you know, defamation of character. But again, we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, and eventually Wilkerson will get what's coming to him. Mm-hmm. But for now, he's running amok here in town. And he's sending these letters to the state's attorney about this big scheme that's going on and how Frank Jones has paid off these people to commit these murders. His story keeps changing. You know, he keeps coming up with new people, keeps coming up with new ideas. And for whatever reason, the attorney general, I, I guess. I'm going to guess he was just so buried in reports and paperwork from, you know, Agent 33 that he finally just said, you know what, let him just keep going. I don't know where this is going. I don't understand any of it. I don't know what he's talking about. But if he's actually got some solid leads, let's let him run with it. Not realizing how much damage he was going to do. Mm -hmm. Well, two things. One, the Whipple sounds like a bad dance um, that's been introduced. (laughs) Yeah. Two, uh, I'm I'm curious, um, you say, you know, this poor woman and everything. Can you kind of clarify? Because it seems to me from what I'm reading is that 
Vina Tompkins is just as like dramatic and, and oh yeah, I, as, and I think okay. she I think she added to the story, but I'm pretty sure that Wilkerson inflated and exaggerated made everything and made it worse. But she was looking for attention and probably some kind of reward money. Well, she it seems like she just wanted to get her kid stuff like well, out she or is just I mean she's like one hard luck story after another, mm-hmm. and how much of it was true. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, we'll never know. But obviously she wasn't super smart. I'm going to guess very uneducated, um, you know, based on the fact that he went out and found some woman selling door to door makeup and told her to pretend like she was a psychic. Yes. And then, we'll get into you that. know, and convinced her to, you know, to tell him the story. I mean, that I mean, that's that's pretty bad. I know that even today cops are allowed to lie to suspects. Oh, yeah. But, all the time. I mean, the, but this I mean, that that's taken things even a step further. Yeah. You know. Yep. So always comply with police officers. Never tell them shit. <laughs> yeah. That's my thing. No matter what they tell you to do, do it. But don't tell them anything. Um, so, OK, is Wilkerson, was he actually attacked by someone in this gang or does people break in? You, you think it's made well, up? Well, no, actually, that was the other detective. That was. Oh, oh OK. That was Got the it. guy who. Vina had originally told his wife that she had a secret to tell. There's and then so the much wife story. told I know. And then the wife told him and he went to her to try to get her story and she wouldn't tell him either. Because I mean that drug on for weeks yeah. with oh I've got a secret, but I'm not gonna tell you kind they, of thing. They talked for like four hours, right? And yeah, and then all the she talked part. about were, you know, were psychics. And then so then he tried to go to the attorney general and say, hey, I've got a story, but I'm looking for a reward. Mm -hmm. And they said no. And so they sent Wilkerson to hook up with this guy. My guess is that he was never attacked by anybody Uh and that. But it made his story sound better, you know, because I mean, again, it's not like you had to go out and get you didn't have to go to the police academy. It's not like you had to get like an actual license to call yourself a detective. Anybody could call themselves a detective. It's like. 25 years before that, you could call yourself a doctor because you read a book once. (laughs) So it's not like, you know, there was really strict licensure laws back then. Everybody could carry a gun because there were no laws against that either. So, you know, these anybody who wanted to be a detective could be a detective. You could just call yourself one. I mean, Wilkerson had gone to law school and had ended up passing the bar in Texas, but then decided to become a you know, a, a detective instead, because I'm sure it seemed more exciting. Yeah. Um, which is probably how he managed to run so many cons the way that he did. He was good at asking is questions. Because, right, right. He knew what he, he knew how to ask questions. He knew how to, you know, approach people because, I mean, he had studied to be an attorney. But on the other hand, out of the 100 percent of attorneys out there, probably 75 of them, I wouldn't trust, you know, with my grandmother. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of shady characters in every one of these professions and it's 1914 you don't people didn't have driver's license you didn't have any kind of you could call yourself anything you wanted to you could do anything you wanted to practically back then you know i mean yes you could be arrested for breaking the law you didn't go around robbing banks and stuff but if you wanted to call yourself by six different names in six different towns who's going to know the difference and i would have yeah who's going to know the difference yeah it'd be fun so 
you know, it's it's just it was a lot looser a hundred years ago. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, but hundred and five years ago. So the story that we eventually get to, and I don't know if this came from Vina herself or from Well, Wilson I think it was a combination stuff. of the two. It's a combo. Basically, she hears three men talking about planning the murder, and it, it's Frank Jones, Albert, well, and it's, Jake it's Weems. somebody. We right. don't know who it is. But this is but who they eventually assign Well, that's who he decides to. that it was. Right. right. And it's a really long story, convoluted. It is. Heard it's it really complicated. Right. right. Um, and and I, hey, I listen. I cut that down. I, I'm glad. I'm glad. Oh, at one point, I, I had to cut that story down. At one point, I just wrote, "Can you explain this?" But, yeah. But yeah. we've already kind of talked about it yeah. a lot. Um, but Wilkerson eventually he prints out and sells to the public a list of a hundred yeah, questions that'll come later that he wanted Jones to answer. Right. Um, have you seen these questions? Yeah, Is it I, still I've around? Got the list. Okay. Yeah. All right. Because yeah. I'm very interested in that. Yeah. I don't. I didn't even. I didn't put the entire list in the book or anything because it's just too long. It's a hundred questions. Ridiculous. Yeah. But. Did he nail it to the church uh, door? Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. So um, at this point he had made uh, a number of quote-unquote conclusions about right, the case right um let's let's run through these real quick sure. first that the murderer was stark naked except for gloves i'm not against this one <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, there's I so much blood i know i know but you know that's the you know that goes into the whole lizzie borden thing yeah you know which i know we're not going to talk about here but you know when i do those evening with lizzie borden presentations um i talk about the you know the ridiculousness of that whole mm-hmm. theory um and this is almost as bad maybe not quite as bad i get bad, what you mean like they could okay he well, wants to running jump on a train. See, but you remember we're only dealing with Velisca here yeah. that's the only crime they're okay. investigating right. so um in this particular case i mean they didn't have any running water in their house except for that pump and, you know, they would have, if they, he had cleaned up in the house, there would have been a sign of someone cleaning off that much. I mean, it doesn't matter. Anyway, <laughs> okay. the, the idea is, is that this is just Wilkerson coming up with his own theories. Right. And so, we're going to, we're going to keep diving. Yeah. I'm just saying when I cut myself shaving, it looks like a massacre in the bathroom. I know, That's just I know. a tiny little bit. But anyway, okay. Second, he believed that the mirror was draped in the room where Sarah and JB were killed because of the killer's superstitions. Uh, he stated that he heard a belief where it was bad luck to see oneself naked yeah, in a mirror. I've never heard that story. I can vouch for that. <laughs> It's not. It's not a pleasant sight. I don't enjoy it. No, Um, but I've never heard of it being bad luck. Right. Right. Third, uh, he did not believe that the meal prepared in the kitchen and partially eaten was arranged by the killer. He believes it was uh, what a nephew, I think, or yeah, yeah, a a young nephew who walked into the house. That's a whole other thing. Uh, Yeah, we'll get we'll get into that a little bit more later. Not a whole lot, but we'll get with a statement he may or may not have said. Yeah. Uh, fourth, he believed that the main actor in the instigation of the murders was driven by jealousy, a hatred for JB, and an animosity toward him because of business practices and fidelity. And he was not the husband of the woman whose lack of chassis had caused the tragedy, he said, but her father-in-law. Right, because he now has decided that Frank Jones was having an affair with Donna. Yes, because I mean, they because, went to church together yeah, and Yeah, something stuff. crazy. And, you know, because – and it really it was just a, it was just a way to paint the Joneses in, in a – even worse light. Yeah. You know, that, you know, she'd had a reputation. Albert had, I don't know, you know, there, there were rumors about her and Albert before they had gotten married, which was, you know, out of bounds in the early 1900s. And so she was already a loose woman. So yep. she must've been, you know, banging JB Moore and her father-in-law too. Because, right. I mean, it's just, it goes back to our last episode with poor Anna Hudson. You know, she might've had an affair with a guy in Ohio, but somehow that followed her all the way out to Kansas. Yeah. And, you know, and suddenly that, you know, it was all her fault. That's why they got murdered because it goes all the way back to the garden of Eden. Let's always just blame it on the woman. Fucking it's always gotta apple, be yeah. her fault. So, 
Yep. All he wanted to do was give people knowledge. Okay. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> anyway. So fifth um, point that he makes, he believed that the man who was at the first Methodist church on the night of the yeah, murders this, pretended to be a holy roller crazy. was connected to the yeah, crime. I it may have actually been the killer. From. Yeah. Which is so dumb. Yeah. Well, and, and I don't even, I mean, that's something he just really pulled out of the air. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was never any suggestion of anything like that mm-hmm. at any point in the investigation in the two years prior Until to him. this. This is something he just decided that, oh, well, when he heard that the Holy Rollers were at the Methodist church that night, it must have been arranged by Frank Jones. Right. What my, my favorite part was that how he ruled the church because he was the Sunday school superintendent. And I thought, has all the really? power. <laughs> all the <laughs> really? power. So, yeah, I didn't uh, I didn't get that at all. But, you know, but the whole thing was, is that let's bring in something as weird as possible about this, because to everyone at the time, that was, you know, the Holy Rollers were completely nuts. Right. I mean, that fair. movement. Well, it is a little bit that fair, part. But that movement had only started, you know, about eight years before in L.A. there in California at the time. That's when the Sousa Street Mission you know, Pentecostal thing all started and it sort of spread around the country mm-hmm. and it was seen as, as crazy. That's most things time. from California. Well, spread right, out here right, are. exactly. But most people, you know, people at the, the Methodist church, we talked about this at the time, you know, bring in the people speaking in tongues and rolling around on the floor. Um, that's nuts. Yeah. And so when Wilkerson saw that, well, here's another element I can add into the story. Mm-hmm. So it must have been him. And for whatever reason, I don't know why he decided that the pastor was, yeah, yeah, was the killer. I don't, and he'll change his mind three or four more times. Don't worry. All right. It's, this is far from the end of his right. theories. Right. Yeah. This is just where we're at right now. Right. Yeah. Well, Frank got up and walked out of church and it, it couldn't be that he was just annoyed you with know, the Holy right. Rollers. You just know, like, he, whoa, he I had to I've have, seen enough of this. And yeah. it's so weird. I mean, you know, cause I'll, I'll go up against uh, priests, bishops, deacons, you know who I don't mess with? The Sunday school teachers. They <laughs> yeah, have the, all the yeah, power. Right, right, yeah. Ridiculous. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, like I said, he believed, you know, he was connected to the crime and all that. And he also suggested, a little caveat at the end, I would suggest that local officials be kept away as much as possible. This uh-huh. case ought to be handled through the attorney general's right, office strictly. Right. Local officials always act strangely. He was the primary investigator yeah, for the attorney general's office. The only investigator. And, yeah. and this kind of reminds me of like um, the Dick Cheney thing where he's like, I'll find you the vice president. It's like, I looked right. around, can't find anybody. It's got to be me. I guess it'll have to be me. Got to yeah. be me, you know, yeah. and, and you just kind of work yourself into, into a job there. So bravo, whatever. Um, <laughs> attorney General Cawson, uh, how do you pronounce that? Cawson. Cawson, uh, who certainly didn't know at the time that Wilkerson's growing conspiracy theory was soon to include him. him yeah. He read the report, there. paid the bill, and agreed that there was a lot more work to be done. Again, like you said, he's probably just buried in paperwork. He's like, you got to lead, go yeah. with it. Um, yeah. But he had, like you said, this is a quote from you, he said he had, he had no idea he had just let a mad dog off of his leash. And that's where we're going to pick up again in two weeks while discussing the last known murder that's attributed to Billy the Axeman. It's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. This message is from Carmen, and she writes, I just heard the first episode in season three. Yes, I'm a little behind. Sorry. There was a question from someone. I think that someone was me. Asking, why do, why don't angels possess people? The answer is simple. Well, is that really a question? Well, yeah, because I was talking about, like, you know, with the possessions. I was like, why, did, why doesn't well, that an was angel ever... Well, three. 
Oh yeah, that's right. Season two was the end of season two. Oh, all right. She, okay, she fudged the details. All right, whatever. She says angels. Sorry. Angels will never go against God's doings, and one of the things of doings is giving us free will. If angels possess us, then they would take away our free will, which would, then we would become evil. I hope this makes sense to you, even if you don't believe. Troy, love your in-depth research. Yeah. Thank you for doing the show. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna discredit any of our listeners. No, because we love them. But. I will say. Well, my th- my first thought was it kind of seems to me like. People having free will is a lot of what caused well, them I, to all be All I was going to say is that all angels ever did was slaughter people for the most part anyway. Yes. So whenever a, God wanted dirty work done, that's who he sent. That's so true. I don't, I don't, angels don't possess people because they got better things to do. Yeah, there are people to kill our Christ, and dismember. Our Christopher and, Walken impression. Yes, exactly. But, but anyway, thank you very much for your right. for your thought. And well, why I are appreciate you looking it. at me like that? Lisa is looking at me like in shock. What? Why are you looking at me? Do you not know what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah? Who do you think did that? It's bad. Angels. I am, I am aware, but I mean, they slaughtered like in in the Old Testament alone. There are thousands of people slaughtered by angels. It's a great book. If you like fairy tales, it's a great book. And brutality, and but it's filled with sex and violence, and most of that violence is carried out by angels. Yeah. All I'm saying. Okay, so I'm getting close to the mic because this matters and they tell me that I should always do this. So I need all of you who are listening to this that believe in angels to flood that inbox right now with <laughs> to your story. Podcast at gmail.com. That's true. So. No, seriously, flood their email because they need to hear about what angels can do for us and especially those uh, near life uh, guardian, near death Guardian angels were a Victorian invention. I'm going to need I'm you just to t- just <laughs> shut up. You've had your turn you sh- and this you, is my time you Stop with right your history now. and facts. So I would really like for you to uh, <clears throat> write in with your personal stories. I have my own, which I will express after this so that I can say more curse words to Troy. And um, <laughs> tell them what you know about angels on a personal level flood that inbox because i know flood the inbox let him know and put him in his place thank you man send your angel stories (laughs) to cody back yes yeah please tweet at me um also, you can check out um, our shirts, tank tops, hoodies, everything, American Always <laughs> Clothing. Yeah. Um, um, also, if you give to our Patreon and I owe you a T-shirt, please respond to my email. I want to yeah. know what T-shirt He's you want. Sending you emails, you have to write him back. I, I want to make sure you get the best shirt possible. So, okay, well, I guess we should probably wrap this up. That monologue alone was enough for like four episodes. Yeah. It was kind of a long one this time, but I had to get that story in there. To, kind of kicks things off. So thanks everybody for listening. And um, if you get a chance and you have friends who are not familiar with the podcast, uh, we did a ghost hunt a couple weeks ago and like nobody there had heard of the podcast. Yeah, that the doesn't heck? happen very often. We did have a, when we did our first Springfield tour back at the end of April, uh, our Springfield hauntings tour, we had uh, several people on the podcast who told me how much they or on the tour, who told me how much they enjoyed the podcast. That's great. And so that was nice. And then I come and do this ghost hunt and everybody's like, you know, looking at me blankly. And I'm like, okay, wow, we did not get to these people somehow. So if you have friends who have not listened, um, we hope you'll pass it on to them. We hope you like it enough to pass it on to it. And uh, leave us a review on iTunes um, if it's a good one. Oh, actually, even if it's a bad one, we'll yeah. read it on the podcast. As long as we can so, talk about it. Yeah, as long as we get to talk about it. So we, we, we love to get reviews. And as Cody mentioned, it does help people find the podcast. So anyway, thanks again for everything and uh, hope to see you at the conference in a couple of weeks. 
Yep, get your tickets. All right, let's see how this goes. This episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy, Troy Taylor, Taylor, and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. In each episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, what? imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and take and a brand new it. look at and history. Didn't we cut this off right here? Because it's to long. learn more about yeah. our podcast. Yeah. Find are new real. episodes on iTunes, <laughs> is, Spotify, or your favorite no one's podcast app by searching for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's <laughs> books real. and information and about upcoming tours, events, and haunted happenings. Remember, if you love this show or Angel Talk, American Hauntings <laughs> is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference and t-shirts. Oh, yeah, t-shirts. All of which you can find at our website at yeah. AmericanHauntings.net. Kind of getting out of sweatshirt season And now, if you're so one of the people really who wish we had a new show every week... We do week, have tank tops, Well, you though, can have so. that. You have the chance to support the podcast by checking out our Patreon page. As a supporter, don't you can get bonus tops? episodes of the show, oh, okay. t-shirts, so, tank tops, well, I don't great stuff in the mail, tops. and more. Yeah, We're extremely excited about producing more shows shows with better equipment and with your help we can dedicate more time a and what? resources to making this happen take a minute and Ooh, check Beach it out Town. we think that's a good you'll idea. like what you find at patreon.com yeah, american idea. hauntings you can yeah. also find your host on twitter instagram facebook April and if you have comments suggestions reviews yeah. or jokes be sure to pass them along until next time <laughs> goodbye american hauntings lisa on <laughs> instagram so long. Oh, yeah we should probably start adding that in see you later yeah.